British Columbia's Agricultural Land Reserve was put into place in 1973. The idea was to protect 3.9% of the province's agriculturally capable land, and there's been a division between those for and against ever since. Some say the ALR prohibits urban growth, while others say it's needed to maintain what little agricultural land this province has. And uh, there's been lots of speculation. Uh, There was a report in April that was commissioned by Van City, uh, rising agricultural land prices that are threatening regional food security, prices as high as $350,000 per acre in the ALR in the Metro Vancouver area. Dr. Kent Molinix is Director, Sustainable Agriculture and Food Security, and is engaged in research and development to advance sustainable agriculture and food systems at Kwantlen Polytechnic University. We invited him to talk about the Agricultural Land Reserve, what it's being used for, the pricing structure of the land, and what's driving valuations. Good morning and welcome. Oh, good morning. Thank you for the invitation. Nice to have you with us. Um, drive down uh, any rural area that is in the ALR. I, I cite Richmond, for example. Uh, there's areas of, of Maple Ridge and in the valley further down. And it's for sale sign after for sale sign after for sale sign. And where, where there is not a for sale sign, there's a, a hotel-sized house going up in its place, otherwise known as an estate property, but it's the land, I fear, is either being rented out for farming or not being farmed at all. Well, there, there is a lot of that. Uh, much of the ALR land in the lower mainland is not being farmed, and I can, I can attest that uh, most of the land in the ALR is not valued for agriculture. It's it's not bought or sold for agriculture. And the prices that agriculture land is fetching in the lower mainland absolutely is a price that that agriculture uh, uh the agriculture production sector cannot service. Mm-hmm. So so there is something else driving the valuation of agriculture land. And these are speculators I would think. <clears throat> Well, I think so. Uh, land, uh, because they aren't making any more of it, mm-hmm. and, and specifically good agriculture land, is a good place to park your money. Richmond Mayor Malcolm Brody has uh, called for a similar uh, 15% tax that has just been imposed by the provincial government on foreign nationals buying property. Uh, he'd like to see something similar to that, as if I understand correctly, for people speculating on ALR land. Is is that something that you would agree to? Well, well absolutely. I, I, I absolutely would agree with that, but I would go uh, steps further. I I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, given given the fact that food is fundamental to every other element of the human economy and is the foundation of our uh, future sustainability, we have an obligation not just to preserve agriculture land, but actually to uh, foster a, a productive and resilient and a, a adaptive uh, agri-foods, agriculture and food system sector. And if we're wise, we will uh, foster that agri-food system in southwest BC so that it uh, benefits our communities and our com- and our economy more directly than than conventional agriculture currently does. We have a tremendous resource that we could uh, uh, 
utilize and and to build a tremendous economic sector, and we're not doing it. We're, we're uh, talking about it today, but uh, Dr. Mullenix, this is not something that people are talking about every day. Well, all we hear about is, is house prices and, and land values in, in the city. Well, why is there not enough, I mean, to me at least, there's, there's simply not enough focus on our food production and our farmland. Well, there, there really isn't, and it's because in North America we've had uh, over the last several hundred years, this ability to just move production anywhere we want, and uh, with the advent of the transnational food system, we we actually uh, encouraged production offshore and and imported food, and and uh, we, we've we've had this cheap food policy for decades, but all of that is coming to an end with peak oil and and global economic uh, uncertainty and uh, climate change and, and our uh, uncertainty of uh, in terms of what we can grow where it is absolutely incumbent upon us to develop uh, a, a regional food system and and we can do that and foster tremendous regional economic uh, uh, contribution so so I really would would uh, propose that not just uh, should we impose a, a tax to preclude offshore or foreign ownership of agriculture land, I actually think we should we, we must eliminate all speculation on agriculture land. It we need to decommodify agriculture land. It's going to take some very powerful policy. Uh, simply uh, well, f- let me begin by saying that that a 15% tax on on uh, uh, house transfers uh, by uh, foreign investors or agri- a 15% tax on land purchases by foreign investors is not going to stop speculation. If if you have the kind of money that it takes to to buy land in Metro Vancouver, uh, then then that additional 15% is not going to stop your your purchase. We, we need to assure that this precious natural resource uh, that has the ability to produce food is used for food production. Uh, I would propose that ownership of agriculture land be uh, ex- excluded to uh, trained agriculturists with a sound business plan to, to produce food for our communities. I think believe we we need to uh, eliminate the ability to park money on agriculture land and uh, wait for it to be pulled uh, waiting for it to be uh, removed from the ALR or uh, simply holding it and and leasing it out uh, for folks to farm and uh, so you can get a, a tax break so I would I would propose very strong legislation that that required uh, agriculture land ownership uh, to be by agriculturists who are trained to uh, produce food in, in, an, in an ecologically sound way and steward this precious uh, natural environment uh, resource. Every year uh, we're seeing this kind of, of increase in the cost of food. Is that driven by, uh, by uh, the fact that we import so much? It is absolutely. It's 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 driven by the uh, increasing cost of processing and distribution, and uh, 
the, the results of climate change and, and uh, lack of production in our in our typical uh, areas that supply us, California and Mexico. And we can absolutely expect food prices to continue climbing. There is one thing that people have to do, uh, and, that, and that is eat. Dr. Mullen, actually, you make perfect sense, and I just want to uh, stop you there just for the interest of time, because yep. the, the thing that concerns me here is that we've got a housing crisis right now in Metro Vancouver, and people don't give a rat's you-know-what about the farm. Unfortunately, that's, that's the sad reality. When I listen to you and I hear you making perfect sense and how we need to protect our own food sources, most people are thinking about how, are, how am I going to afford to buy a house? How's my kid ever going to get a house? So there's this threat in my mind, at least this is my feeling, that there's an appetite to see more of the ALR released into urban development. It, is this something that is this a fear that you share? Oh, abs- absolutely. And how do we stop it? Well, this is a good question as as well. And and I've been speaking about creating a policy uh, uh, environment that would result in a different economic uh, uh, environment that agriculture and the food system would operate in. We need to do the same thing. Uh, in in our economy writ large, the fact of the matter is we have developed economic policies uh, over the last uh, four or five decades that have increasingly marginalized uh, middle class the, the the middle class and the and the working class and have promoted the the, the tremendous con- the unprecedented concentration of wealth globally, and and the fact of the matter is. Just as we've created an economic environment that that is not conducive to a food system developing uh, in in a robust way, we're, we've we've fostered an economic system and, and an economic environment that is actually undermining the the, the middle and working classes' uh, ability to participate in the economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to pay more attention to it. And unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, I'd love to have you come back and talk more about this because I think this is an important issue. And, and if we can bring more attention to it, maybe more people will pay attention to uh, the need to, A, have the ability to feed ourselves and also to pay attention to what we're doing with this very valuable resource, and that is our, our agricultural land reserve. Dr. Kent Molinix is Director, Institute of Sustainable Food Systems with Kwantlen Polytechnic University. We certainly appreciate your time and hope that you will join us again in the future. My, my pleasure. I'm, I'd be pleased to continue this discussion. It is, you're right. It's a very, very important one. And uh, we'll take a quick break on Vancouver Consumer from News Talk 980 CKNW. There is no greater rite of summer's passage than the annual fair at the Peony. Friends and family from all parts of the province make the Peony a must on their list of summer fun for the performances, the exhibits, rides and attractions, and all that food. The fair at the Peony launches the 2016 version this Saturday, and it promises to be memorable for one and for all. To share a preview and to help you plan your trip to the Peony, we're joined by Michael McDaniel, the President and Chief Executive Officer. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to have you with us. In this age of distractions, how do you keep the Peony relevant while still staying to its roots? Yeah, you know, that is the question. Um, we, you know, we work really hard to uh, to bridge that gap, to bridge the gap between everybody saying we want the traditional fair stuff and we also want something new. And 
A couple years back, we embarked on that a little bit more vigorously than we had in the past, and we uh, we are doing that again this year. So it's a matter of doing things that people uh, see as that tradition, that, you know, the, the super dogs, the atmospheric uh, entertainment, the, the fair foods, but also bringing in, you know, first-class entertainment that is going to be here this year only, and it's going to be something new next year. So if you see it and you think it's going to be uh, great, come uh, come this year and, and see what's happening at the fair. We'll talk specifically about some of those things in a moment, but uh, one of the things I wanted to touch on uh, with you, and that is uh, the PNE itself as an experience for so many people. Uh, how many people do you know that I know that that, that everybody knows had their first job at the PE? They got their first real job experience at the PE. Maybe they met their lover at the PE. Uh, they develop lifelong friendships. This is something that's been going on for a long, long time. Let's not take uh, the human experience out of any of this. No, and that is, you know, I think today in the in the digital world. Uh, that we're all in, we have to be reminded that there there still needs to be things that family can do together, uh, and the connections that you have in your in your community, however large that community is. And we were just talking about that the other day. That there is about a hundred and seventy five thousand people that have worked at uh, the fair uh, over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, you know, that's our statistics, and it's you know it's a little bit more than the population of the city of Coquitlam. Uh, and so when you run into people uh, and you say, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're at your own job, you're, you're grown up, you're, uh, you're a grandfather, grandmother, mother, father, you run into people that, you know, every third person either worked at the P&E or their brother did or their sister did. Mm-hmm. So it's, it really is the, the, it's unique in a city still this young that uh, a lot of the collective uh, experiences of this region connect to the P&E. Yeah. You talk about uh, one of the new things that has been uh, for the last couple of years, and that's the features that you call new and only this year. Uh, and I want to tell you that uh, I'm still marveling and still cannot get over the Game of Thrones exhibit from a couple of years ago. That's how much of an impact that had on me. Um, what have you got this year that will be here only this year at the PNE? Yeah, so one of the things that uh, you know we decided to do is bring in those exhibits that um, that you did remember for years. And uh, again, a bit of a different skew this year. We have a um, uh, an Angry Birds Universe exhibit. Now, this is an exhibit based on, on obviously, the game, mm-hmm. uh, based on the movie, and uh, it's actually been touring for the last couple of years, first time in North America, and it, and it debuts here at the fair. It's a 20,000-square-foot exhibit. And for kids and the young at heart that have played that game uh, vigorously, they... Um, they get to kind of step into the game. There's there's zip lines. There's uh, big slingshots. There's you know it's a really interactive exhibit that is going to take that brand uh, and make it uh, personal for them. And that was the idea. That was the idea of Game of Thrones for that uh, genre. And uh, this year we have Angry Birds. We also have an Aliens and Androids exhibit, which is about seven thousand square feet. Uh, lots of things from NASA that are in there, and um, and that's uh, that's going to be something I think. That appeals to all ages again. Are these things included with the price of admission? Uh, the Angry Birds is a little bit uh, of an entry fee. It's uh, five dollars, three dollars and fifty cents, and kids are free, uh, depending on your age group. Okay. That's really um, That's reasonable because, yeah, it's we try to keep it nominal. Really, what happens is with these big brands that have, you know, the mothership. This is by Rovio, which uh, invented the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a royalty that goes back, uh, you know, to them and. 
for all of these big brands that come in, there is something like that. Sure. Aliens and uh, and Androids uh, is is uh, free with admission, as is all of the rest of the entertainment. Uh, it's just the Angry Birds. What about Unbelievable, a, a magical experience? This is uh, something that I think will really capture people's imagination, and I can't think of a better venue than the P&E for something like this. Yeah, you know, we did uh, Peter Pan, a Broadway musical. First Time Affair has done that last year in the Pacific Coliseum for our feature show at night, and it went over really well. We wanted to do something again this year that translates different language barriers, uh, different cultural backgrounds, different ages, and we came up with, with this, and it's, it's called Unbelievable, a Magical Experience, and it's six different magicians and illusionists from across the globe that have come, and we're combining them into one show uh, in our biggest building at night, once a night, a uh, 60-minute show, and I think everybody is really going to marvel at, uh, at some of these, because every, every one of them has their specialty, and uh, they're amazing, absolutely amazing, uh, and um, I guess I should say unbelievable. <laughs> one of the big draws for the P&E for so many people uh, is, is the concerts, and you've got quite a lineup this year. How, who picks, who, who comes, and, and how is that process done? Um, how do you decide on, on who to, to ask to come in, into, the, into the P&E this year and, and run down some of the names that you think are really going to be popular? Yeah, so, I mean, we start, we almost start right after the fair for the next fair in looking at what the availability is, uh, who's touring. There's a committee that uh, looks at all of that and tries to uh, set an eclectic group across because you want to try to find something for everybody. You don't want to just have all rock or all country or all R&B. You want to have something for everybody. And so this year, you know, probably two of the the biggest ones uh, is Steve, the Steve Miller Band mm-hmm. uh, on uh, on August 24th and Foreigner on August 27th. Now, we've had Foreigner before. Mm-hmm. Um, we have not had Steve Miller before. So, uh, again, uh, b- big concerts there. But, we, you know, you have Culture Club. You have uh, the Sheepdogs. You have Monster Truck. You have uh, Drew Hill. Uh, you have Pat Benatar, Chris Isaac, the Monkees, uh, who just released a new album this year. Uh, and they're doing their 30th uh, or their 50th anniversary. 50th, yeah. And uh, so, again, it's, it's something f- we try in all of our entertainment. It's something for everyone. So one member of the family, uh, every member of the family can say, I want to go see that. And uh, oftentimes it's a different part of the fair, but they all get to come and enjoy the fair for the whole day. Yeah, it's a real, uh, real nice way to spend an evening. Uh, the uh, win a car, win a home, uh, nobody's been on the grounds and hasn't heard that whispered or yelled in their ear. Uh, w- what's special about this home this year? Yeah, you know, we, we were the first ones to uh, give away a house in a lottery uh, back many years ago, and uh, we're, we're doing it again this year. Uh, it's in uh, the Naramata Benchlands, uh, a lakeview lot, uh, uh, half acre. Uh, the, the interior of this house, uh, when people walk through, they're going to be really amazed. It's, very gr- it's a very green house, a uh, very sustainable house, and um, it's one of the bigger houses we've had uh, uh, over the last couple of years, a little over 3,400 square feet. And, you know, with the, obviously with the uh, topic that has to be the number one topic in the last year, if not longer, has been house prices. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing is that people, um, you know, probably like it was 80 years ago when we started this, it was difficult to afford a home. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to afford a home. And people are looking at this as a, you know, as an advantage to get uh, ahead of the the chase that everybody's in in this uh, in this province really the dream is alive it really is and um 
that's how it started uh, way back when, and uh, we're we're doing it again. A, a, an amazing home. I think everybody that walks through it is going to love it. I want to ask you before I let you go. I know there's a lot of excitement uh, about the fair. The the weather so far is looking good. It's going hopefully cooperate with you. Uh, what about the the idea? You did a public survey earlier in the year about changing the dates. I know that this is probably not the best time to expand on that, but I'm just wondering if you can update us on, on where you're at with that. Yeah, for sure. We did, uh, you know, we did some some gut checks over the last number of years of whether we wanted to consider this, and we got to the point where we did. So we went to the next step, which was asking the public what they thought. Now we haven't officially released all of that detail, but what I can tell you is that it came back very positive. You know, what I think we heard from everybody in the surveys was we absolutely love the fair, we want it to be successful, and we'll come whenever you put it on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that gave us the flexibility that we can move it or we can keep it the same. What we're doing right now over the next about four months, besides running this year's fair, is doing the detailed planning. Um, We'll go to our board of directors in December, recommend uh, a decision, and they will make that decision in December, and we will announce that to the public. In the meantime, we're doing a lot of engagement around stakeholders that are more specifically involved, whether that's our suppliers, uh, our neighbors, etc. And we'll be doing that over the next four months as well. Really appreciate that. And thank you for answering that question. Uh, Michael McDaniel is the President and Chief Executive Officer for the PE. The 2016 Fair at the PE opens up on Saturday, August 20th to September 5th. And we wish you nothing but success. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment on Vancouver Consumer on News Talk 980 CKNW. It seems that not a week passes without some kind of emergency. A natural disaster, car accident, personal injury, heart attack, bomb threat, some kind of pandemic, and so on. It's a very big list. But how well prepared are you? In an emergency, you'll need a plan and some basic supplies. You'll, you'll need to be able to get by without power or tap water, be self-sufficient for at least 72 hours. Joining us on the phone from the Abbotsford Air Show is Karen McPherson. She is the CEO of St. John Ambulance for BC and the Yukon. And uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Nice to have you with us. Oh, thank you. Is it loud and noisy there? It's not too bad. We're between shows, uh, but it's nice and toasty, that's for sure. I imagine it has been. And uh, have you had a lot of uh, heat stroke and that kind of thing on the airfield this, uh, this year? Well, it's up from last year, I hear from the volunteer team. Uh, the um, uh, We had uh, three or four ambulance calls yesterday, which means we take them uh, to as far as we can with our training. Uh, and if it's acute, then we call in BC Ambulance. But they've had a lot of um, activity around, you know, heat and heat-related symptoms. Some cuts and scrapes with kids. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're busy. Yeah, well, it's, it's a good show this year, and there's a lot of interest in the F-35 and, and other aircraft that are on site this year. So yeah, no no like doubt... there's 100,000 people here. Yeah, no doubt the crowd is large. Um, generally, how are we doing uh, collectively? When, when we look back uh, and we review sort of the situations that we've uh, been through locally, we're, we're pretty, uh, pretty lucky here. We don't uh, deal with a lot of things, but once in a while we'll get hit with something. But uh, we're never too far from some kind of an emergency or natural disaster. Uh, Generally, how well prepared do you think we are? We're not as well prepared as we should be because, you know, fortunately we haven't had a lot of uh, any major catastrophe for a long time. 
But uh, and that leads to people getting more complacent about being set uh, for an emergency. So a big part of St. John's messaging is uh, on the preventative side. Sorry for the noise. On the preventative side, to get people uh, set for any kind of um, uh, an emergency. So things like making your plan um, with your family, uh, building a kit to make sure that you are well equipped for 72 hours and and being educated and trained with uh, you know basic first aid skills and uh, CPR. It goes a long way. I mean, when there's an emergency, that's not the time to be planning. <laughs> no, absolutely not. By what definition is an emergency? Anything that uh, that that uh, affects or impacts uh, a, n- a number of people. Uh, it could be a community uh, uh, that's impacted by fires. Uh, it could be um, it could be a number of things. It's not we're not always talking about the big one, the earthquake. Mm-hmm. We're talking where a number of people need emergency services immediately, like you know even power outages. Where you can go be at, where a community or communities can be out of power for several days. Right. Uh, you you need to be prepared. And we saw that recently, uh, but I guess my concern is, and it always has been, when it comes to emergency preparedness, whether it be CPR training or or any kind of a first aid training or other kinds of preparedness, having a kit. As you say, we're, we tend to be very, very complacent in our comfortable little spot here in Metro Vancouver. How, how, do, we bake, how do we break through, or what can you do as an organization to, to break that complacency, to, to get people in a position where they are self-sufficient or at least better prepared to deal with some kind of a catastrophe? Yeah, good question, Ian. Um, as I said earlier, we, we're spending much more time messaging in the last uh, three or four years on the preventative side. So we're using channels like your, your like CKNW and others to get the message out, but we're also very big into digital and uh, spreading the message that way. We have 25 offices uh, in 25 communities across BC with 2,000 volunteers. So we're combining that messages messaging when we are out in the com- in the various communities across the province. It's just going to take a lot of repetitiveness, but the same communication. I think people uh, become complacent about it because they're a little overwhelmed as well. Like, they just don't know where do you start. That's a good point. And where you start, it's really simple. You know, just under, just putting a plan together, um, you know, your, you know, for at play, at work, at home, what, what what happens if the family is away from one another? If it happens, you don't know what time it's going to happen. It comes out of nowhere. Yeah. So putting simple plans together, and that's a conversation around a dinner table. And there's lots of good, we have a lot of great information on our site that we, we really condensed, and we wanted to get it, make it so simple that people would, you know, couldn't help us plan together. Sure. And then build a kit. The kits are, we put a lot of time into uh, preparing and making up our kits, but you can easily make up your own kit at home, too. Um, and there's all kinds of information on sga.ca uh, for the consumer to read about that. It, it's, it's, you know, when we have a, a, an event, 
uh, like the like the uh, uh, earthquake uh, we had last December, mm-hmm. the awareness just jumped. Right. You know, it becomes very people get very much into into a panic mode. We need to get prepared. But you know, two weeks later, it go away. It goes again. Yeah. Do you think it's kind of like uh, it's like preparing a will? Nobody wants to do that because they don't want to face the prospect of what that means. But without it, it could mean a, a whole bunch of trouble later on for your your loved ones and those that uh, survive. Uh, same thing with preparedness. You don't really want to think that uh, natural disaster, any kind of catastrophe, is going to happen to you. But uh, there's a good chance that it will. And by being prepared, there's a much better chance that you'll survive unscathed. Good point. And you know the feedback that we get most often uh, with it from the students that go through general first aid in in our classrooms across the province. When they, they come out of those classes, and some of them are two-day courses, some are one, the short courses, the ones that help people just feel more confident in, in their ability to be, or in their, um, that they are prepared for any, any catastrophe. The, the, the feedback we get from them is, why haven't I done this before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it, 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 makes, it could be the difference between life and death. Well, the funny thing—not it's not funny, but I, I guess the, the for me it's kind of funny because it it's only a few years since I put a kit together, and uh, you know what? It, it takes so little effort, and it really doesn't cost an awful lot of, of money, and it gives you a, a certain sense of security. One of the things that I really think is important that I ask you, and that is what role does social media play in safety and preparedness? Because I I often wonder if uh, social media and this digital age that we live in, in some cases, doesn't lead to a false sense of security. Yeah. Uh, it, well, it, 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 social media is great. It depends on how you use it and, and how, in terms of getting out uh, messages to, to um, the people you want to receive them. So with, with, uh, we have a campaign that's going on this summer, uh, and it's called Get Set for Play, which is part of our play, work, and home series in our um, in our overall campaign those messages were going after a certain group of people using social media around keeping your children safe uh, around uh, pools and cliff diving and making sure that they're 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 hydrated in events like Abbotsford Air Show, mm-hmm. uh, sunscreen. So we're putting all those messages out from that perspective. And then we'll go in a little bit about emergency preparedness on a bigger picture. We do the same thing for work and, then, and the same thing for at home. So we, 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 you target your messaging so that it, it's relatable to people. It's not just another full-on message like get prepared. Because get prepared doesn't, doesn't call for an action. Right. We're, we're calling for an action. Get set. Be set. Sure. For an emergency. I want to ask sense? you. I, I just wanted to, uh, before we sort of back out of this uh, discussion, wanted to ask you uh, for uh, some kind of a, a working definition for St. John Ambulance. So much, so many of us have heard of it, so many uh, of us have seen you and your organization at, at events, but we're, we're not really that familiar with the, the background and, and how you came to be and, and what your role in our community is. We're we're uh, we're BC's best kept secret. Let me start with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, now's the time to tell all. I'll tell it. I'll tell it all. Uh, we've had roots in British Columbia since 1911. 
And uh, our role started out with uh, first aid, providing first aid uh, to uh, communities. And most of them, those people providing first aid were people who came from that background, nurses, doctors, etc. cetera. Uh, so our role today, we're a charity, we're a non-for-profit, and we have 2,000 volunteers. 1,500 of them are in the first aid side. So they're, they're trained uh, as medical first responders. They're, they're, most of them, uh, uh, you know, probably 10% of the 1,500 are paramedics or nurses in emergency um, um, wards and hospitals right now. So they're, they're, they're professionals that do volunteer work here. So our mission is to go out and work with communities to provide first aid where there's more, where there's a, where there's a gathering. So it could be at the air show, it, it's the Festival of Lights, it's the Gay Pride Parade, we do all the first aid at, at Rogers Arena, uh, and then any smaller events in smaller communities, like runs, 10K runs, 5K walks, that kind of thing. Excellent. I, I, I want to... Uh... Uh, wish you continued success and to, to keep up the good work. And unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, I just want to ask you for a quick answer on this final question, and that is, if, if there was one thing that you could say to, to people right now in terms of being better prepared, what would that be? Buy an emergency preparedness kit. And you can do that through St. John Ambulance. St. Have a kit. Visit the website. Uh, thank you for your Have time. Thank you. Enjoy the air show. Karen McPherson is the CEO of St. John Ambulance for BC and Yukon, and we'll have you back again. Uh, Thank you for your time. Much appreciated. We do have to take a break. Uh, That's what the clock says. But stay where you are. There's much more coming up on Vancouver Consumer from News Talk 980, CKNW. Some whale watchers got a rare look last weekend at a rumble between a group of transient orcas and two humpback whales with a calf. A whale-watching captain and marine researcher says the whales were spotted by several whale-watching boats at the western edge of the Salish Sea off Jordan River on Vancouver Island. In a news release issued by the Pacific Whale Watch Association, Mark Mallison says it seems transient orcas just like bugging the much bigger humpbacks. Observers said the altercation appeared to end with the human equivalent of fist-waving and name-calling. Locally, Sea Breeze Adventures in Steveson is a good organization if, you, if you're interested in going out for some whale-watching. The president of Earl's restaurant chain is apologizing to Canadian beef ranchers. Uh, he did so at an industry conference in Calgary to disavow the companies, as he put it, dumb strategy last spring to only buy beef raised in the United States. Mo Jessa says the company now knows that it deeply offended the Canadian cattle industry in April when it announced it would buy all of its beef from an American supplier that had a certified humane designation. The move prompted outrage and threats of a boycott. The restaurant chain reversed its decision and in June signed a supplier deal with Canadian ranchers who raise cattle without antibiotics, steroids, or added hormones and who are regularly audited for animal welfare. And the gold medal for dating goes to Tinder. Some Olympians are looking for a little action away from the competitive action and the Tinder app is proving to be very popular. A Tinder spokeswoman says dating matches in the Olympic Village increased by 129% over the weekend. 
profiles from athletes have updates like, got plenty of time to kill, looking for a little fun in Rio. Olympic organizers want those hookups to stay safe. Nearly half a million condoms have been ordered for the Olympic Village. Meanwhile, the song, The Girl from Ipanema, Astro Gilberto and Stan Getz has had a massive jump in streaming since the opening ceremony when Giselle Buchin strutted uh, across this, this stage during those uh, Olympic ceremonies. Spotify says the song was streamed more than 40,000 times a day after the opening ceremony. Usually it streams about 3,000 times a day. The CRTC report confirms what many of us in Canada already know and what we've suspected for some time, and that is we are paying some of the highest prices for mobile phones and internet service among the G7 nations and Australia. The survey by Nordic City found Canadians paid the highest cost for entry-level wireless services of 150 minutes, more than double the price paid in Germany, where entry-level service is the least expensive. Canadian charges were also second or third highest for other options studied like unlimited talk and text and five gigabytes of data. The report also found Canadians are among those paying the most for fixed and mobile internet, although they get a break on the cost of fixed home phones where they're among those paying, uh, where we are, that is, the, among the, the, those that are paying the lowest for home phones in the G7. BC Real Estate Association says the record-setting pace of housing sales in the province is finally moderating. The Real Estate Association says sales of residential units declined by 3.4% in July uh, for the same month last year, although the average price still jumped 9.1% to $663,411. That's across the province. Association Chief Economist Cameron Muir says he believes price relief is also in sight as the less frenetic pace of home sales will likely provide a much-needed boost to the number of homes for sale. Modified golf carts are being allowed on selected roads in two B.C. communities as part of a new pilot project starting in September. Qualicum Beach on Vancouver Island and Chase in the Shushwap will allow people to drive the carts on local roads with a maximum speed limit of 30 kilometers an hour. Qualicum Beach's mayor says residents have been asking for these options, and he says they're thrilled to be part of a one- to two-year pilot project. There's a real sign of an aging population. A 58-year-old architect in South Korea spends his free time making wheelchairs for disabled dogs. The man owns an architectural firm but goes to his workshop whenever he has free time. He started making pet wheelchairs in 2011 and has to date donated over 400 of them. My neighbor had a pug and they had a specially built wheelchair made for the little pug and it got along quite well. Thank you very much. Vancouver police say they never telephone residents at home to seek personal information or money. And they want homeowners in the city to be immediately suspicious if they receive such a call. Constable Brian uh, Montague says several complaints about questionable phone calls have been received over the past week. In each case, the caller identification shows the link originates from the police department's non-emergency line. But Montague warns the number has been spoofed and may actually come from a call center in India. He says all the potential victims have described the person on the line as unprofessional and having a South Asian accent. 
Montague says that the suspect identifies himself as a police officer and they believe similar calls are targeting residents in jurisdictions outside Vancouver. It's not clear what type of personal information the caller may be seeking, but he says uh, it's uh, still something that you want to be suspicious of right off the bat. Polish authorities have arrested an 80-year-old woman who drugged her dates and then stole their money. She met victims through the Lonely Hearts advertisements in the newspaper. And for those of you who label yourself as a millennial, that's just like Tinder, but with pages that you actually have to turn. And rare identical, uh, identical triplets were born in Oregon. They had to carefully review the video to see who was born in what order and who should get, and if you'll pardon me, it's Olympic season, the gold, the silver, and the bronze. <laughs> and that's pretty much what's been going on in the world of consumer. My name is Ian Power. Greg Schott is our technical producer. If you have comments or anything you'd like to talk about this show or segments you'd like to hear, please visit our website at cknw.com. And stay with us. We've got Shane Foxman coming up with CKNW Weekend. This is News Talk 980 CKNW.